Welcome to the Development Policy Centre podcast. I'm Jonathan Pryke. In this podcast, I sit down with Andrew Lee, the Federal Member for Fraser and Shadow Assistant Treasurer, to talk about inequality and its role in development. So, Andrew, you've been researching and talking about inequality for a long time. Um, I actually have your book on inequality sitting on my desk at home. Good. Glad to hear it. In the stack of To Be Read, (laughs) (laughs) along with Piketty's book as well, actually. Um, So, the first question I have for you is, why is inequality such an important issue? I think inequality is a public good. Uh, this is something that economists have touched on from time to time, but the no- notion that uh, not just the poor benefit from their incomes being closer to the rest, uh, but that people in right across the income distribution would prefer to live in a more egalitarian society. I've always liked the John Rawls veil of ignorance way of thinking about this, where he says, uh, imagine what sort of an income distribution you'd want uh, if you were in utero, about to be born into a society, uh, when you didn't know whether you'd be born into the top fifth or the bottom fifth. Would you want the kind of Australia where the top fifth has 62% of the wealth and the bottom fifth has less than 1% of the wealth, if you knew that there was an equal probability of you ending up in either of those two quintiles? Or would you maybe want a more egalitarian distribution of income? And we know in as a practical matter that more egalitarian societies tend to be more socially mobile societies. As the gap between the rungs and the ladder moves further apart, it becomes harder and harder for a poor kid to climb the ladder over the course of a lifetime. And so the postcode into which you're born increasingly determines your destiny uh, as societies become more unequal. Um, Inequality has really launched itself to the centre of global discussion and discourse over the last few years. Um, Thomas Piketty's new book appears to have taken the world by storm. Mm. Um, Could you provide a brief synthesis of your take on Piketty's work? So first of all, it's, there's something thrilling to me about the idea that in the age of Twitter, a 700-page hardback book by a French economist can take the world by storm. Uh, there's, uh, there's hope for our public conversation yet. Thomas Piketty uh, was the founder of uh, the approach of using taxation statistics, national accounts and population data to together estimate top income shares. Uh, he did it for France in the late 1990s, uh, Tony Atkinson uh, read his book in, uh, in, in French for the UK uh, and then uh, a variety of other people did estimated top income series for other developed countries, uh, including Tony Atkinson and me looking at Australia. And Piketty essentially uses those data and a host of others to map out why inequality uh, fell so much in Europe uh, from the 17 uh, from the 1800s to the 1900s, and then why it's risen principally in the Anglo-Saxon countries over the course of the past generation. He focuses on the role of capital, and he talks about uh, the uh, what he calls the the Iron Law, uh, that when the rate of return on capital, uh, the percentage. Uh, gain that you get if you're an owner of uh, uh, a house or a bundle of shares tends to be greater than uh, the overall rate of growth in the economy. Uh, so he says when R is greater than G, when the, when the rate of return on capital exceeds the growth rate, uh, then societies will tend towards inequality. I think this is 
an important theory. It's really important to uh, to think about capital shares. But for countries like the US and Australia, uh, it doesn't explain the bulk of what's gone on over the past generation, uh, which is actually to do with uh, rising dispersion uh, in wage incomes. Uh, the gap now between uh, what an anaesthetist earns and what a cleaner earns uh, is significantly higher than it was in Australia a generation ago. Um, so why do you think inequality in recent years, and I, I think from about 2007, seven, eight onwards, has really, as I said, launched itself to the centre of um, global discourse? What's changed? Uh, there's a, a lovely Henry Aaron's line from uh, the late 1970s where he said that at that stage, uh, studying inequality was like watching the grass grow. And it reflected the fact that for a long period, uh, inequality had been softly trending downwards and had reached a a period of stability in the 1960s and 1970s. Part of the reason it's come into global prominence now is because uh, it is like watching the grass grow on one of those super fast-forward movies. Uh, The top 1% share in Australia has doubled over the last generation. The top 0.1% share has tripled. Uh, we've seen uh, doubling in Porsche sales, uh, quintupling in Maserati sales, more, helicop- more helicopters, more private planes per head of, ca- head of ca- Australians uh, than in the past. So people can just see around them that Australia is becoming more unequal uh, than it used to be. I think the reasons for the rise in Australian inequality are threefold. Uh, superstar labour markets driven by a combination of technology and globalisation, which have acted together like a force multiplier for people who are at the top of their game, to increase the gap between what the CEO earns and what the average worker earns. Secondly, the collapse in union density in Australia, from half the workforce in 1980 to less than a fifth of the workforce today. Unions are a strong force for equality and the, the sidelining of unions from uh, the Australian workplace has increased the gap between rich and poor. And thirdly, cuts in top tax rates. And there were good reasons why uh, we went from a down from a top tax rate of 93% in World War II to 70% in the 1970s uh, to 40-something percent today. But it is un- unambiguous to me from the evidence that those reductions in top tax rates uh, played a part in rise, rising inequality. Uh, so they're my kind of three big explanations, superstar labour markets, deunionisation and cuts in top tax rates for the increase in inequality that Australia's seen. Okay. Um, I'd now like to turn the conversation towards the developing country context. Um, the conventional development economic theory has said, you know, a rising tide will lift all boats, don't worry about mm. inequality as countries develop, just grow, grow, grow as fast as possible. Um, But we've noticed in recent years that developing countries are observing an increase in inequality, um, larger than conventional rates of developing countries in the past. Um, Should we, or developing countries themselves, be worried about this trend? Yes, absolutely. And I think it's it's most pronounced in China, where uh, you've seen very large increases in inequality, and where some of our early analyses of inequality have uh, somewhat understated the extent of inequality because the surveys have been based in urban China. Uh, once you have surveys that take into account rural China as well, you get a picture of uh, a nation where the gap between uh, the haves and the have-nots has gone up significantly. 
Interesting, interestingly, um, uh, China is also a country with a very static social system uh, in, in work that uh, uh, I've done with co-authors at the Australian National University. Um, we found that the degree of social mobility, uh, the, the ability of uh, sons and daughters to move into a different income bracket from their parents in China, uh, was very limited. Uh, the Chinese society is is even more static than, say, the United States, which is uh, had previously been regarded as as one of the most uh, one of the least socially mobile societies around. And as inequality rises, again, it's that thing about the gap between the rungs and the ladder. Uh, big gap between the rungs and the ladder in China uh, will make it very hard for young Chinese born into modest circumstances to uh, to really make it. And that's, I think, why you're seeing some of the, the pushback against uh, the princelings, for example, uh, a frustration among ordinary Chinese that the, the game is uh, rigged, rigged against them. Now, now, that's just the story of one developing country, but I think uh, similar observations can be made uh, about inequality in a range of other developing countries. Um, the work that Pierre van der Eng and I have done estimating top income shares in Indonesia, for example, um, was partly us pushing back against the World Bank view that Indonesian growth had been highly egalitarian. And they again had that picture uh, because they had been surveying expenditure rather than income and the distribution of what people spend is always more equally shared than the distribution of people's incomes because the rich save a large share of their income and their poor, the poor don't save anything. So throwaway savings and a society can artificially look more egalitarian than it really is. And, and we're able to show that Indonesian inequality uh, is uh, re- relatively high and rising. A lot of um, developing countries with rich, rich in natural resources have been post, especially in Africa, have been posting robust growth rates for the last decade. Um, do you think these, these growth rates can mask uh, the fact that this growth might not be shared across the whole populace? Yeah, I mean, a growth rate is always a mean, and to the extent, the more inequality you get, the less your growth rate tells you what's happening to the typical person. Uh, in some sense, just as we have median house price indices, and so house prices don't get skewed by the sale of multi-million dollar mansions, it would be ideal to have median income growth statistics for countries. It just turns out that's a really, really difficult number to put together on any high-frequency basis. Uh, But the challenge for developing countries, as indeed it is for developed countries, is to make sure uh, that the benefits of minerals are widely shared. Um, One of the most important development economic books that I've read over the last decade has been uh, Paul Collier's The Plundered Planet, uh, which very clearly argues that uh, there is a benefit. There's the potential for country, for developing countries to turn the resource curse into a resource blessing, uh, but it requires uh, very careful policies. Uh, things like uh, publicly available geological surveys, uh, auctioning of the minerals rights, and transparency of the, uh, uh, the the taxation flows are fundamental to making sure that uh, the average person in a country benefits from a find of diamonds as distinct from suffering, which has been the standard story in Africa. Uh, so turning 
again to uh, Australia. Australia this year is hosting the G20, as we all know, and um, the C20 has been lobbying uh, to have inequality recognised in the Brisbane G20 communique. Mm. Um, is inequality a topic that the G20 should be taking on, or is it? Or since it is mainly a function of domestic policy, is it something it should be, that should be left to individual governments? Well, the, the G20 discusses issues that are both international and comparative. Uh, that is, issues which naturally flow across borders and common challenges that countries are facing. So in the global financial crisis, the G20 focused very much on common strategies uh, for making sure that domestic unemployment didn't rise too high. Too high. Uh, that was an important role in the, in the G- G20 and uh, Australia pushed very strongly for, uh, for, for that to happen. I find it very strange that the G20's agenda was inclusive growth uh, in Russia last year, but now that it's come to Australia, a nation with a proud history of egalitarianism, our government has decided to drop off the word inclusive uh, and just focus on growth. Uh, that misses the fact that growth is, uh, is, isn't is an end in itself. It's a means to expanding well-being across the population. And I worry that uh, Tony Abbott and Joe Hockey uh, aren't aware that their uh, uh, senior leaders in a country that has experienced very large increases in inequality over the course of the past generation and where... Uh, inclusive growth uh, ought to ought to be natural. I mean, I held a, 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 a spoke at a, the launch of a report on inequality uh, on Tuesday of this week, and the former Liberal leader John Hewson was there, and he was bemoaning the uh, rise in inequality which has occurred and what he saw uh, as uh, the, uh, the 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 measures in the budget that would exacerbate that. Uh, if a former leader of the Liberal Party can see that, uh, I'd very much like to see the current leader of the Liberal Party recognising it. So, yeah, C20 is on exactly the right mission. So G20 is a, is a good forum for inequality to, to be discussed and try to be tackled? Absolutely. These are, these are important challenges, and there's, they, they, I mean, they certainly have an international dimension. So the question of base erosion and profit shifting by multinational companies is fundamental. If you can fairly tax multinationals, uh, then you will be better able to manage uh, an inclusive ma- manage inclusive growth within your society. Uh, you won't then need to uh, cut back on on pensions, for example, uh, because you've lost a billion dollars of revenue to multinational profit shifting. Uh, so Piketty, in his book, talks about uh, innovative taxation methods. Um, Many have been lobbying around innovative finance for global public goods for decades, since the days of the Tobin tax. Um, why is it so hard to orchestrate tax methods of this kind? Um, and do you think they're a good idea? I think that uh, Tom Piketty's proposal for uh, global wealth taxes are likely to come to nothing, and I think instead we ought to be focusing on two strategies. Uh, one is making sure that we have as few loopholes as possible in our tax laws. Uh, This is standard economics that you want to have broadly based taxes because then the rates can be as low as possible. If you have as many holes as Swiss cheese, uh, then you need a bigger block of cheese in order to to get the same nutritional value. Uh, I don't see 
much of a push on this from the current government and we talked before about the billion dollars they've taken out on multinational profit shifting measures where Labor would have pursued those measures harder. But the other thing is just making sure that we're disproportionately investing in the most vulnerable. Uh, inequality, tackling inequality isn't going to be about putting lead in the shoes of the fastest runners. It's about looking at the pack about to start the race and noticing that there's a kid who's starting 10 metres behind everybody else and doesn't have a pair of school shoes. And that unless we put disproportionate resources into high quality preschool programs uh, for Indigenous children, uh, unless we make sure that literacy and numeracy gaps are, are closed in schools, unless we have a means-tested uh, means social safety net uh, which continues to uh, direct income support disproportionately to the poorest, then we're not going to, to work to close the gap. And by the way, if you care about uh, gender pay gaps, if you care about the gap between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians, then you must care about inequality. Um, just quickly, one final question back on the G20. Hmm. If you were in Tony Abbott's shoes and inequality was on the agenda at the G20, what would be your pitch to the G20 about how to tackle it on a global scale? I think Australia has a, a good story to tell about our means-tested social safety net. Uh, as, according to the data from Peter Whiteford, uh, the Australian social security system uh, does more to target resources of the most vulnerable uh, than any other country in the OECD. Uh, I'd be proud too of Australia's record of two decades of uninterrupted growth because you can't tackle poverty and disadvantage uh, in a stagnant economy. Uh, it's very hard to be generous to the poor at home, let alone those overseas, uh, if you're not enjoying growth. But then also to recognise that there's things that Australia can do better. We can probably do a better, better job of evaluating our social programs. And, and there's plenty of G20 nations that much more rigorously evaluate their educational and social interventions uh, than Australia. Uh, and I'd be keen to, to learn from them and particularly keen uh, to show leadership in the area of base erosion and profit shifting. Tony Abbott talks a good game on base erosion and profit shifting, but the only thing he's done since coming to office uh, is to open loopholes which Labor had sought to close. Okay, Andrew, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for the opportunity. You have been listening to a podcast from the Development Policy Centre. For more information on our work, visit our website at devpolicy.anu.edu.au. To join the conversation on Australian aid, Papua New Guinea and the Pacific, and global development policy, visit our blog at devpolicy.org. At the blog, you can also sign up to our newsletter for all the latest updates or connect with us on social media. Thanks for listening.